Good morning. Well, it's the sixth and final installment of this uh, somewhat intense uh, batch of sermons uh, that we've that we've been uh, pondering here uh, for the last several weeks about preserving and promoting peace within the body of Christ. And uh, I, ask, I ask you to, uh, to bear with me uh, for one, one more sermon. Ne- next week, you're going to get a break uh, from, from me. And, uh, gentle Pete's going to stand up here, Lord willing, and offer some reflection uh, for us. And I think that will be uh, beneficial to all of us. I am, I am really, uh, really encouraged uh, by a, a lot of the, the feedback that I've received in terms of how these, how these sermons are, are challenging you um, in, in various ways and in various relationships. Um, when I was at the youth group uh, question and answer session a couple of Fridays ago, uh, John Washburn asked me uh, if I would comment on the the seventh seal in uh, Revelation chapter 8. Um, I'm no expert on the seventh seal, but at least I had uh, one good answer for him, you know, that, hey, the, the seventh seal is that seal which opens up the seven trumpets. Yes. Uh, so, you know, w- one thing, one thing opening the door to several things. And that's kind of like this sermon today. Uh, this sermon is like, is like uh, opening a door to four additional sermons, um, kind of like mini-sermons. It was actually going to be eight. I was going to try to pack eight mini-sermons into the sermon today, and then it dropped to six, and I settled, settled on four. You'll be really thankful for that. Um, but really, really, I, I'm, I'm, the, the last four sermons in particular have kind of all fit together, and we're kind of breaking some new, new ground um, in, in this particular sermon, um, and I, I do hope that it is a, it's challenging and encouraging to all of us. Um, and just remember that we are called to be salt and light. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be on mission with him, making him known to the world in word and deed, making disciples, building up the church, worshiping God with one heart and one voice. And, you know, if you have, we could have all of our ducks in a row, all of our papers in order, all of our programs operational, and if we have not love, then we are nothing. If we have not love, we're just making noise. If we have not love, we're going to devour one another. And and so uh, love is not an abstraction, but it has to get worked out practically in our relationships with one another. And that's why this, this whole issue of peace and unity and reconciliation, forgiveness is so critical um, to, to, our, uh, to our congregational life. So, so I'm going to walk, I got, so I got four, four little mini-sermons here. The first two are short, the second two are longer. Let me pray. Father, uh, I thank you that the preaching of the word from this pulpit uh, 
keeps people coming. Uh, it's, it's not driving people away. I, th- I thank you that there's a desire here to engage honestly with the exposition of the scriptures and to, to, to really wrestle with, with what you have said and how that's supposed to get worked out in our lives. And, and we come before you as those who are weak vessels who need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would make uh, this message um, profitable and helpful to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, each one of us must endeavor to find our security and peace, our ultimate security and peace in Christ alone. Now, it's easy to sign off on that, like, well, yeah, of course. But if if your ultimate sense of security and peace depends on your relationships with other people, you will fall hard against the miserable rock of other people letting you down, and you will often sacrifice truth-telling in order to keep a superficial peace. If you have to have other people's approval, if if you feel like other people have to like you, if you have no stomach for disagreement, if, if you have thin skin that overpersonalizes everything, if you can't be yourself because you're preoccupied with playing a part that you think other people want you to play, if you can't imagine two believers having a principal disagreement with one another and yet walking away loving and respecting one another, if you constantly feel ashamed under the critical gaze of other Believers, if you're uncomfortable in your own skin, then you will be unable to pursue true peace within the body of Christ. And the reason for that inability is simply this. You're constantly attempting to superficially line up with other people, but in your own heart, you're not really aligned with the grace of God. And since you're not, since you're not standing on the solid ground of Christ's love for you, you you're bouncing every which way, to get love from other people, or to make sure that you don't rock the boat. Such people are always compromising or negotiating their way toward a shallow social peace, but they're tossed about without a firm anchor. Remember who the instruction was given to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Who was that instruction given to? To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.1. To those who have put their hope in Christ, Ephesians 1.12. To those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, Ephesians 1.15. And faith in the Lord Jesus in the context of Ephesians 1 means that you've come to believe in the great love and lavish generosity that your heavenly Father has for you in Christ. Moreover, his immeasurably great power is at work in our lives. He has regenerated you, Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, reconciled you to God, Ephesians 2, 16, renewed you in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4, 23, and resourced you with doctrinal truth and divine armor, Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6. I'm speaking to believers now. The, The prayer that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That prayer in Ephesians 3, 19 comes before the instruction to humbly, gently, and patiently bear with one, bear with one another in love and to maintain peace within the fellowship. The instruction to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4, 32, presupposes that we have experienced for ourselves, God's gracious forgiveness in Christ. If you attempt to make peace with each other on the basis of thin, abstract, or unexperienced notions, then you're not going to be very successful. But if the riches of God's grace are securing you and stabilizing you and safeguarding you, then you will genuinely be able to to cultivate and promote true peace, genuine peace, with your fellow believers. When the riches of God's grace are satisfying you, then you will increasingly display the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And and the the ninth of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 5.23, the self-controlled person is not ruled by his emotions, not ruled by fleshly desires or worldly concerns, not ruled by the demands, pressures, and shouts coming from other people. The self-controlled person is under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, not tossed about, not able to be manipulated, not easily offended, not able to be bribed. The self-controlled person is, is stronger than a warrior. As it says in Proverbs 16:32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. If you are secure in the Lord's justifying grace, in the knowledge that he loves you no matter what, if you're secure in the sin-removing, guilt-removing, shame-removing sacrifice of Christ, then you'll be able to be a confident, courageous, and honest peacemaker. But without that foundation, all attempts at peacemaking are going to be counterproductive or superficial. Be secure in the Lord. Second, there are times, and by the way, all of these four things I want to talk about today are related to peace, but they're not all necessarily tightly related to each other, so just, just, just roll with it. Um, second, there are times when it is good and right for a third person a third party, to help to mediate a reconciliation effort between two brothers or two sisters, or a brother and sister. And, and what I'm talking about here, I'm not talking about the church discipline process of Matthew 18, 15 to 18, which of course, that's very important, right? You go to your brother, one-to-one, and hopefully you win him, but if you don't, then you take one or two others along with you, so that every matter may be Every, you know, every fact may be established by two or three witnesses, and hopefully you win your brother, and if not, then you tell to the whole church. That's, that's very important. I've preached uh, three sermons on that uh, several years ago, but that's, not what I'm, that's actually not what I'm talking about right now. Uh, what I'm talking about is the role of a mediator or facilitator to help estranged brothers or estranged sisters be reconciled to each other. Sometimes the mediator might proactively involve himself in a conflict that he is aware of by calling upon both parties to be reconciled to each other, which is what the Apostle Paul does in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, 
when he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Philippians 4.2. At other times, the disputing parties might invite a, another Christian they both trust to sit down with them and help them sort it out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the believers had certain grievances against one another, perhaps in such matters as breach of contract or a dispute over property rights or personal injury claims or who knows what else. And they were filing lawsuits against one another in the secular law courts. And, you know, th These are the kind of things that might make their way into a small claims court. And Paul is beside himself. He's, he, Paul said that there ought to be wise people within the church family uh, who can adjudicate such matters. He writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 6, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to, goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? It's a terrible testimony, Right? Whenever we are called upon to do the work of a third-party peacemaker within the church family, we must remember how important it is to be a man or woman of good character. A third-party peacemaker cannot be partial, cannot exhibit favoritism, cannot be for the one and against the other just because you like the one and you don't like the other. The, uh, just, just like the administrative judges of Exodus chapter 18, a third-party mediator must fear God, be trustworthy, and hate a bribe. Exodus 18.21. A third-party peacemaker should desire that God's will, and only God's will, be done in the lives of the people that he or she is serving. A third-party peacemaker must exhibit that purity and all, the, all the, the qualities of heavenly wisdom, right? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Got to exhibit that to all parties in the conflict. Uh, and, and remember that if the, if the third party peacemaker is, is trying to sort out a conflict that involves sin, how important it is to be gentle and lowly of mind, right? Uh, Paul said in Galatians 6, 1's, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Such gentle restorers of others must be self-controlled and must humbly recognize their own vulnerability to sin when they are helping to restore others. That's why Paul told these gentle restorers, uh, he said, Right after telling them to be gentle restorers, he said, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's also in Galatians 6.1. Be strong in the Lord, and then help others to be at peace. So if you're in conflict with someone else and you feel stuck, don't be ashamed to ask a trusted brother or sister to help you. Maybe you need another person's wisdom, perspective. Or, or, or scriptural counsel. Maybe you need another person to support you and walk with you through the reconciling experience. Maybe you need a third party who is trusted by all to leverage his relational capital in order to bring the both of you together that you might have an honest, peaceful, and constructive conversation. If you are aware that two other people have conflict, and you have a trusted relationship with both of them, 
then it might be very appropriate for you to, to go to them and appeal to them to be reconciled and to offer to help them or to sit down with them. Having a trusted third party present in a conversation, and I, I've, I've experienced this, having a trusted third party present helps to moderate the emotional volatility of the conversation. It helps to keep people grounded and focused and helps to help you to see the issues as objectively as possible. So don't be afraid to offer assistance. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And don't be too proud to accept help. All right, <clears throat> two down. The two short ones are down. Now, uh, the, the two longer ones, which actually are somewhat interconnected. Third, make room for people's differences. Now, you, you know me well enough to know that I'm not, I'm not uh, talking about the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology. Uh, what I am talking about is the simple and straightforward fact that among God's people, within the doctrinal and moral boundaries that Scripture gives us, there are all kinds of differences among us. The body of Christ is not an elite club for a certain type of Christian with a particular cultural background, with a certain maturity level, and with a specific ministry focus. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, I'm not, this is not me. I'm imagining somebody else saying this. W wouldn't it be nice if every church member has already been a Christian for 25 years and is conversant with the writings of Augustine, Luther, and Calvin and loves 90-minute sermons? <laughs> or, or... Wouldn't it be nice if every church member was a super off-the-charts off relational type who had the gift of mercy and had a compelling vision for orphan and widow care? As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be great, for that would narrow the body of Christ into a rather boring uniformity that the Bible itself doesn't do. The body of Christ is a community of disciples from diverse backgrounds, Greek, Jew, Barbarian, Scythian, rich, poor, to use New Testament categories, that list could be expanded considerably, with diverse maturity levels. Those who've been believers for 25 years should exhibit a level of maturity that you would not expect from a believer who has only been a believer for a few months or a few years. With diverse ages, a, a, a healthy church is intergenerational that runs the spectrum from babies to nonagenarians. You know, those are 90-somethings. Uh, with diverse circumstances, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice at any given time. Some are weeping, some are rejoicing. And with diverse giftings and roles. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 1 Corinthians 12, 17. There are many temptations to treat poorly those who are different from us. Will we make room for children and their immaturities? Will we make room for the elderly and their infirmities? Will we make room for baby Christians who need spiritual milk and aren't ready for solid food yet? Will we make room for brothers and sisters who have baggage on one issue or another? I certainly hope so, because if not, we're all in trouble. Will we make room for, for those whose, whose gifts push in a different direction than ours? Now, 
while I'm, while I'm still discussing this point, and this, what I'm about to, this observation I'm about to make is relevant for the third point as well as the fourth point, um, I, over the last three and a half years, many new people have visited our church family and settled, and settled, settled down here to be part of our church family, and it's been, been a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. Uh, last Sunday, there were about 160 people in attendance here. 74 of those 160 were part of our church family before the COVID shakeup. 86 of the 160 were not. And, and, and that is indicative of a significant demographic shift in terms of the composition of our own congregation. And more people means more differences, more differing backgrounds, more differing life circumstances and outlooks, more differing gifts and strengths and weaknesses and needs. How's that working for you? How are, how are you handling that? One of the pressure points for differences among us is that when we have believers of differing cultural and theological backgrounds, differing maturity levels, differing ages, differing circumstances, and differing gifts, you will inevitably find that such people handle certain things differently. Paul discusses this sort of thing in Romans 14, 1 to 15, 7. I preached a whole sermon on this in, um, on June 28th, 2020. And a great many of you were not here to hear that sermon. I'm going to email it out this week because I would encourage you to listen to it. It could be really helpful to you. Others of you might want to review it. Uh, it's kind of, you know, you might, you, might, you might be surprised a little bit because the, the preacher in the video has got a really big beard <laughs> and he's using props like tennis balls and, and buckets and it's, you know, but it's, I assure you it is, it's me. Um, <laughs> But um, here's the inevitable reality. Within the basic doctrinal and moral boundaries of Scripture, some believers are going to handle some issues one way, and other believers are going to handle the same issues a different way. These issues that believers handle differently may be referred to as important secondary issues or significant applications of biblical principles or matters of conscience. And the thing, the thing that makes these issues tricky to navigate is that they really are important, serious, morally significant matters, which is why they make a claim upon your conscience. It's not like Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Like, that's just silly to, you know, to debate over something like that. Um, but... These issues are, there's a moral seriousness to these issues, and yet these issues are not so central or airtight that you can require every believer to adopt the same viewpoint or practice. Paul recognizes that those who are stronger believers are going to have a clearer view of the issues, whereas uh, weaker believers less mature believers, are going to have uh, more baggage or blind spots in terms of how they relate to a particular issue. And Paul, Paul you know, he urges us to, to, make, to make room for that and to, to, to be gracious toward that. And uh, for, forget for the moment whether you are in the stronger or the weaker category on any particular issue. Set that aside. And I just want you to appreciate the, the fact that Paul insists 
that we be gracious to one another when faced with such differences. If you want to open your Bible, I'm going to read Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 10. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 10, which says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel about, but not to quarrel over opinions. Again, opinions, not Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, but morally significant opinions about how you live out your Christian life. Okay, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, the common temptation when faced with other believers who handle important secondary issues differently than I do is to judge them, criticize them, despise them, dismiss them, quarrel with them. I may be so convinced that my view of that issue is the only possible one for a Christian to hold and I cannot keep myself from arguing with you, uh, with, ar- with arguing you about it until I have won the argument and possibly lost you in the process. Or I may dislike the fact that your different way of handling the issue forces me to think more deeply about the issue and stretches me to consider the possibility that you might have good reasons for thinking the way that you do. And the more insecure I am, the more I don't want to be confronted by your differing viewpoints. Or I may form an affinity group with the folks who are like me. Why don't we put the vegetable-only seven-day-a-week people over here and the vegetable-only one-day-a-week people over here and the meat-eaters one day here and the meat-eaters seven-day are wholly over here. You know, make, make everybody comfortable. <clears throat> but that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is for you to look with loving regard upon the whole body. Welcome him. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. Welcome the one who handles the issue differently than you do. We, we who are strong, Romans 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4, 2. Now, those of us who know Scripture know that this is the way of Christ. And that sounds, and that sounds really good in theory, 
You know, this way sounds really good, very gracious and kind and making room for people. But for you and me, this is actually supposed to be lived out within the context of a real church family in a real place and time with real people, okay? We're all cool with the vegetables only, folks, in Romans 14. And we're all cool with the meat eaters in Romans 14 because the issue of meat sacrificed to idols is not our issue. So we're all, we're all cool with this. <clears throat> now, but if I, were to, if I were to bring up issues closer to home, you might start to get agitated. Why is, he, why, is he going, why is he talking about that? But you see, that's the point. Can you bear with me a little agitation? Some people would say that they have a better connection to the Lord through hymns. Other people would say that they have a better connection to the Lord through contemporary songs. Do you put down that which another finds helpful? Some people would identify at least partly as charismatics in this Bible-preaching church of ours. And others, not so much. The perennial temptation is to deal out superficial criticism. Do the charismatics even care about the Bible? I assure you they do. That's why they're here. Um, do the non-charismatics even care about the Holy Spirit? But suppose you understood that the aching heart of the non-charismatic is to be faithful to the God of Scripture and attentive to his authoritative voice in the text. And suppose you understood that the aching heart of the charismatic is for the God who dwells among his people to manifest his saving presence in ways that inspire and transform. Do you have the ability to sit down and listen to the other person's perspective and to be challenged by certain biblical texts that actually don't, aren't so neat and tidy fitting into your current mental framework? Some of our ladies wear head coverings and other ladies do not. Now, if any of these ladies had an unhealthy mindset, I, and I certainly hope that this, 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 unhealthy, this unhealthy mindset doesn't, doesn't prevail among us, but, but if these ladies had an unhealthy mindset, those who uh, wear head coverings might see the ones who don't as negligent or deficient, and those who don't wear head coverings might see the ones who do as traditionalist or preoccupied, at, preoccupied with externals. But in that case, neither group would be functioning with a Christian mindset. In keeping with the Romans 14 instruction, your default assumption should be that the one who wears a head covering wears it in honor of the Lord. And that the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. Love assumes the best until the evidence clearly shows otherwise. Now, on the related subject of dress, we maintain the freedom of the believer to dress modestly to what his or her conscience requires or allows we should steer clear of strict rules, written or unwritten, in either direction. There, there, there's, there's, no, there's no position that is safe from the problem of making a rule about it. 
Okay? There is no rule that says you must dress casually. There is no rule that says you must not dress casually. There is no rule that says you must dress formally, and there is no rule that says you must not dress formally. We oppose all such rules. And frankly, if you have one of those unwritten rules in your head, I'm actually very glad for someone else to break it because you need to sort it out. Okay? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, Romans 14.5. We must not judge others on the basis of external appearance, and we must assume the best about the motivations of others. Some people in our church family really like The Chosen, the multi-season show about the life of Jesus. Some people in our church family have real concerns about the show. Do the chosen lovers assume that the show's critics are nitpicky killjoys? Don't want to do life with them. Do the chosen critics assume that the show's followers are placing the show above Scripture? Don't want to do life with them. Why do you think that way? Why does your mind run in that direction? Have you, have you, have you actually sat down and had a conversation? When it comes to parent strategies to facilitate the education of their children, some parents have adopted one approach, other parents have adopted a different approach, and still other parents have adopted a hybrid approach. Do you assume the worst about parents who've adopted an approach different than your own? Do you secretly hope that their approach fails, thus vindicating your own assuming the worst mindset? Have you ever sat down and had an honest, unrushed conversation about why they have made the decisions that they have made? Now, perhaps I have succeeded at making some of you feel uncomfortable. I hope so. You want to know the truth? You want to know the truth? The truth is, there are brothers and sisters, honorable brothers and sisters in this church family on all sides of those issues that I just identified. Like, I was trying to be relevant to our actual Romans 14 issues, okay? Now, you know, to those of you who feel this discomfort, I say, good, and welcome to church. Welcome to the holy and dearly loved church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this wonderful community of not yet perfected disciples. And if you think you've got it all figured out, you don't. Will you humbly, gently, and patiently bear with these brothers and sisters in love? Will you welcome them and make them the object of your affectionate concern? This is Christ's church. This is what Doug set us up so wonderfully for in, on the January 7th sermon. This is Christ's church, and with his sovereign, gracious hands, he upholds brothers and sisters that I would be tempted to shut out. But I won't, for God has welcomed him, Romans 14.3. For the Lord is able to make him stand, Romans 14.4. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Romans 15.7. Now, I could give you my own perspective on these and other issues that I, I might identify, and in certain contexts, I might tell you what I think, or if it comes up naturally in the text I am preaching, then yeah, let's address it. But you know, otherwise, I might actually be really slow to tell you what I think, 
Why? Well, here's one caution I have. The last thing in the world that we want is a veneer of unity that is actually a mindless uniformity in which everyone chooses to agree with what the pastor says. In that case, you would be allowing me to spoon-feed you answers that you're supposed to regurgitate upon demand or otherwise shut up about. Regurgitate. Oh, by the way, that is very unhealthy. To regurgitate is to repeat information without analyzing or comprehending it. Believe me, that's not what we're called to. While I am called to teach you the whole counsel of God and to set forth the beautiful and life-giving doctrines and moral boundaries of Scripture, I am not called to think for you. You must love the Lord with your heart and mind. You must wrestle through the meaning and implications of the text and of biblical principles. You must make dozens of applications and judgment calls and life decisions from an engaged heart and mind in your best attempt to honor the Lord and to serve those around you. The thing about mindless uniformity is that no one actually agrees anyway. It's just a posture of appeasement, keeping up appearances Far better to be a community of messy disciples that are wrestling honestly with what the Bible teaches and how it applies, and then we can honestly share our, our thoughts and our burdens and how we're learning. We can share that with one another and spur one another on to grow. Now, if we are standing in the true grace of God and we're learning to be secure in his steadfast love for us, then we can actually have robust discussions about these, other, about these issues. Not to quarrel or fight, or belittle, or knock down. And you know, on any particular issue, you, you might have the right view, and someone else might really be not seeing an issue clearly. That's entirely possible. But, but, the other person is your brother, your sister, and you're to welcome him, befriend him, love him. Sit down with another and say, I want to know why you see the issue that way. Well, let me tell you. And I want you to know why I see the issue another way. Please do share. Humility. Lowliness of mind. Patience. Not answering before you hear and understand. And together we sharpen one another and refine one another and help each other make progress. Three down, one to go. This fourth point is interrelated with the third point. It is imperative that you get to know one another. For some of us, this final 15 minutes may be the most important 15 minutes of, this, of these six sermons. So if that's, if that's the case, that's all to the good. One of the texts on my mind is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, which says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You can turn there, 1 Peter chapter 4 because I'm going to call attention to verses 8 and 10, too. I am, I am really intrigued by this instruction, because do you know where the word hospitality comes from? 
I don't mean the English word hospitality, but the, the Greek word that is translated hospitality. Do you know where that Greek word comes from? It comes from two words, which means loving strangers. But what's interesting is Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, Peter tells Christians to practice hospitality, to demonstrate love for strangers to each other. So it makes your, makes your mind go, whoa, wow, that's interesting. And now while this instruction to show hospitality to, 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 to one another would certainly have special significance for believers who were traveling from one place to another through Asia Minor or the Mediterranean world and need a place to stay for the night, that, that's certainly uh, important. But, it, but this instruction to show hospitality to one another certainly applied to the believers within the local church, right? They were to keep loving each other, 1 Peter 4.8. They were to serve one another, 1 Peter 4.10. And in the middle, they were to show hospitality to one another. Even in a relatively small congregation, it's easy for some congregants to be strangers to other congregants. And the instruction implies that the goal is, th is for there to be no strangers among God's people. Don't be strangers to one another. Open up your open up your, your heart and home and life to your fellow believers. Invite them in. Get to know them. Now, I really think that we need to heed this admonition for the same reason I mentioned earlier. On an average Sunday nowadays here at South Paris Baptist Church, almost half of the people in attendance were not part of our church family before COVID. And a lot of y'all don't know each other. Even some of the new people don't know each other. And, and, and the, the composition of, of, the, of the church family has changed dramatically in a, in a short time. And, and, and so there's a lot of relational gaps. Many of you don't know each other's stories uh, or each other's life circumstances or each other's joys and sorrows. And this constitutes a vulnerability within our church family. If I eat with you, roller skate with you, play tennis with you, play chess with you. These are things I've done recently. Yeah, I can't golf. <laughs> I cannot golf without being frustrated. <laughs> if I sit down across a table and, and get snapshots of your story, okay, then we develop a bond that is difficult to sever. If I get snapshots of your life up close and personal, and you share your heart with me, and I share mine with you, then we cultivate a disposition to honor each other and endure with each other and that will continue even when our relationship suffers stress. But if we don't know each other very well, then our relationship is much more fragile. And if we enter into some conflict, how easy it will be to blow the conflict and our flaws way out of proportion and to turn against one another. And I don't want us to get in a bad way like that. There really are only two options. Knit together in love, Colossians 2.2. Great, great theme for the ladies for 2024. 20, okay? Knit together in love or isolated and ready to fracture. Okay? Being built together, Ephesians 2.22, or disconnected and ready to dissolve. We can play church or we can do the real thing, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, which says, rather 
Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But real relationships with one another are required. How fitting that the, the command to show hospitality to one another in 1 Peter 4.9 is sandwiched between the commands to love one another and to serve one another. One of the best ways to demonstrate love for one another is to practice hospitality. And within the context of strengthening relationships through hospitality, then we find ourselves better positioned to serve, to serve one another and to serve alongside one another. Now, who are, these other, who are these other Christian people that you're supposed to show hospitality to? Let me tell you about you all from 1 Peter. Okay? These, the, the, these Christian people that you're supposed to show hospitality to who are sitting in the sanctuary with you, they are often grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 1.6 They are sojourners and exiles as far as this present world is concerned. 1 Peter 2.11. The passions of the flesh wage war against their souls. 1 Peter 2.11. Sometimes they find themselves in difficult work environments. 1 Peter 2.18-25. Sometimes they find themselves in difficult home environments. 1 Peter 3 verses 1-6. to Sometimes they are suffering for righteousness sake. 1 Peter 3.14. Sometimes they are maligned for seeking to live a holy life. 1 Peter 4.4 They could really use your prayer, love, and practical support. 1 Peter 4.7-10 These are the brothers and sisters that you're called to show hospitality to. Do you know, do you know each other's trials and difficulties? Do you know each other's sufferings and heartaches? Of course, these brothers and sisters that you're called to show hospitality to are sinners. They sin, quite possibly against you or people you love. What of it? What does it say in 1 Peter 4, 8? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We must not forget that the brothers and sisters to whom we are to show hospitality have been sprinkled with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 2. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. Therefore, in union with Christ and by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, we love our imperfect brothers and sisters. And with our love, we declare our agreement with what the blood of the Lamb has achieved a complete and efficacious covering, reflecting that glorious atonement with love, we cover a multitude of sins and say yes and amen to the gospel. It's also true, of course, and for dozens of reasons, that hospitality is inconvenient. If it was easy and natural, Peter wouldn't have had to say in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. But oh, you'll be tempted to grumble. You haven't the time for it. You haven't the skill for it. You haven't the home for it. You haven't the dining room for it. You haven't the, you haven't the budget for it. And besides, they aren't like you. You have no natural reason to show them hospitality. And I say, great, 
You don't need any natural reason to do it. It's enough that Jesus commands you to do it. Jesus, the one who welcomed you. Jesus, the one who welcomed them. Jesus, the one who wants you and them to experience a mutual, uncomfortable, but loving and hopeful welcome in your home and theirs. And then in ordinary conversations with ordinary people around ordinary tables holding ordinary food or sitting in ordinary living rooms after dinner with, one can hope, extraordinary coffee, (laughs) you begin to get real snapshots of each other's hearts, stories, and lives. And I dare say that these snapshots of each other's Hearts, stories, and lives are of greater eternal value and practical benefit than most of the news, podcasts, sports, and social media that we consume. Now, once every couple hundred sermons, you'll have to allow me to be painfully practical. I lay no specific burden on anyone, genuinely. Whatever you do, do willingly from a heart of love. No pressure, no guilt, no new set of rules, but... I appeal to you to make progress in this most important task. And remember that showing hospitality cannot be reduced to opening up your home. The heart of hospitality is welcoming someone else into your life. And that can happen in dozens of ways. But I do want to land in some painfully practical applications. Keep in mind that getting to know one another requires many opportunities in many different contexts. There's there's no one single magic bullet. Like, if you would just do this... Now that'll solve everything. It's, life isn't like that. So here's some applications, okay? First of, you, first of all, for those of you who are in the habit of opening up your home, I want to set before you a challenge. Be intentional about inviting to your table on the same day a couple, couple families that you suspect don't know each other very well. And by that act, try to build stronger connections within the body of Christ. Second, for everyone here, I set before you this challenge. Between now and Easter Sunday, make an honest effort to develop a meaningful connection with someone that you currently hardly know, or revitalize a relationship that has grown, dis- grown distant. If even 25 of you took up this challenge, the number of strong interconnections within the church family would greatly increase. Third, if you are physically able to do so, I encourage you to attend the fellowship meal that we have on the first uh, Sunday of the month after the worship service. The next one's on March 3rd. Bring a food item to share if you can, but don't let that stop you from coming. And sit down by someone that you don't know very well and strike up a conversation. And if you don't know what to say, say, what did you think of that sermon a couple weeks ago that led us to be sitting by each other here at this fellowship meal today. Oh, yes, a real doozy, that one. Thank you for the reminder. And then, you know, then talk about something else. Get to know each other. Uh, Fourth, I'm looking for a few volunteers. I don't really know what I'm asking you to do, and that's okay, because that's for you to determine. But the way I figure it, it would be beneficial for us to have some creative and fun activities that are designed to jumpstart relationships among people who don't know each other very well. It could involve food, dinners for six, dine with nine, progressive dinners, and so on. Or it could be team building or recreational activities for those who are willing to take the plunge. 
You only need to be limited by your own creativity. Perhaps two or three of you would like to work together to to plan and promote some activities for our fellowship. Consider this just showing you a green light. Like just somebody's got to have some gifting and interest who'd have fun doing that. And I just want to encourage you to do it, to serve this body of believers. Finally, um, I want to encourage you to attend our family meeting on Sunday, March 3rd. You know, it's very difficult for all of us to connect with one another in such a way that we're actually sharing our, our hearts with one another. It's just difficult to, to get uh, people together in that context. But I, 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 really, I, really, I really encourage you to come. The, the, el- the elders realize that our church family needs to be more communicative. Like we, we need to be more communicative with you all, and all of us need to be more communicative with each other. Um, and so we, we just want to encourage you to come, and even come with a mindset to share. What could you share? You could share anything. You, you, you could share how you've been challenged by this sermon series. You, 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 could, you could share about how, some way that the Lord is blessing you. You could share about some way that the Lord is stretching you. you. You could share some burden or concern that you have. Maybe you want to give a word of encouragement to your brothers and sisters. It could be anything. But, but I, I believe that there is a lot of love within this church family, and I believe that there is a need for us to hear from one another, to, to, to receive what, what other people are thinking about as they walk with the Lord and as they experience fellowship within the body of Christ. And so I think it would do us a world of good to to help forge better and deeper connections among us. So those those are five applications. There could be many more. There's nothing magical about those five, but I want to challenge you to not be strangers to one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Welcome one another, because Christ has welcomed you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do far more than we can ask or imagine. I pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. I pray that you would Transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that our our hearts would be in a humble posture of affection, love, service to one another. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.